Welcome to another DevCast. My name is Adam D'Angelo. I'm joined by my co-host, John Janik. How are you doing, That's, John? Yeah, good. That's me. I'm happy to be here. Excited. It's it's evening and it's May and we're almost into June and we're still in quarantine. So how about that? <laughs> how about that? Yeah. And uh, we, we have a, a great guest tonight. Uh, another John, John Bobosh. Uh, welcome, John. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Now, can you tell some of our dev technology listeners um, a little bit about yourself um, and what your background is? Sure. So I work at a company called IQ Solutions. We typically focus on government health. Uh, so a lot of our clients are federal government health agencies. One of the things I do with clients is help sort through analytics on websites and use analytics to come up with solutions for improving websites that we work on. Interesting. And, you know, it's a fun topic because John and I were chatting about this earlier today, um, just different ways to develop software, improve usability, improve the quality, and data analytics as a means to improve the usability is a, is a very fascinating idea to me. It's something that we've employed before on other projects, doing things such as like A-B testing to determine, you know, which kind of path is the, the happy path, the better path. What are some other ways that you've used data analytics to improve usability? So I, I tend to work on public-facing websites, and one of my favorite metrics to look at, I guess just taking one step back from that even, is first identifying what the purpose of the site is. So when a user comes to the site, there's probably five or six things that we are looking for them to take or, or do before they leave. And then setting those up to track in Google Analytics. Uh, those are just called goals in Google Analytics. And what I'm usually looking at is landing pages, so where they start on the website, to goal completion and what is the process. And then kind of taking a step back, looking at pages where a lot of people start on the site and if they're completing a goal while they're there. And if we find that people aren't completing goals on like a highly trafficked landing page, taking a look at what the user journey is and then recommending some changes to either content or how things are organized or maybe even taking a step back and looking at the SEO of the whole thing, like is the page indexed properly? Do we need to change some things with metadata to improve the number of people that both come to the site and then complete the action that we're looking for them to take? What about, so, you know, a lot of our customers run intranet, you know, private sites, things that you wouldn't be able to change your search engine optimization around um, and, and track using, I, I don't think you could track using some of those Google tools, but maybe you could. Um, what are some other ways that we could track data and kind of figuring out how to help our users complete the tasks they need to complete in the system? So I, I think there's like a similar approach that we can take. So I think just before this, you and I were chatting, for a second about some processes that have to happen on the internet, maybe a form that needs to be filled out or several steps that someone needs to take to send something on maybe to another department or for feedback, whatever it may be. So you can set up in Google Analytics or any, any analytics system really, uh, sort of just goal tracking um, and creating a funnel to see where in each step of the process are people falling off and then kind of looking at some of those steps to say, well, can we make this more streamlined? Is there something happening here that's confusing to the user? And kind of just taking a look at that process where we see a big fall off uh, from one step to the next. You know, John, one of the things that's really fascinating to me is this whole idea of, 
you know, we've really entered into a, a phase where we're doing kind of end-to-end digital transformation now, where we're really embracing our end users, asking them to be part of the process, understanding through empathy where they're coming from and how they're going through this digital transaction and service delivery with us. And we're using all that to base these things off. And I'm kind of curious when you talk about uh, when you talk about analytics tools like Google Analytics, like PyWIC, right? Like Open Web Analytics, right? We've got all these different suites. And for our government clients, you know, it's not always going to be Google Analytics, right? You use Google because it's a public facing site and you want those broad data collection abilities, right? Sometimes to, to your point, Adam, you've got an internal site and those those same principles apply, right? John, you just said that, you know, those same things can apply no matter what we're looking at for our customer journey. I'm curious, is there a threshold where analytics don't work if i have a system that has you know a, a hand, you know several hundred users or or somewhere or under a thousand does it no longer apply or can analytics provide insights really to almost any system i'm, I'm kind of curious your thoughts on that so i i guess i have two thoughts on that because sometimes we may cross a privacy threshold where if there are too few users in the system we may we may be able to start identifying individual users. So it, it, especially with if there's something behind a firewall or people can log in. So I think there's some concerns there depending on what we're tracking. But I think generally, if you can anonymize the data for a lot of these things, there are probably still valuable things to glean. So if we're talking about internet systems, you can see how many people are using phones or not using phones. Maybe people have switched more to Microsoft Teams or Instant Messenger, especially now that we're all working from home. Maybe there's a different system people are using. And I'm sure you could apply that data in some capacity, maybe reduce costs by reducing the number of phone lines you have, or maybe you need more connections for something or other with the data that you've got. Is that kind of getting to what you're asking or what are you thinking there? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Hey, and I'm wondering, so related to that, you, you talked about like in the in the journey, being able to figure out where the fall off looks like. So what what happens next, right? So you see what happens where the people fall off and you're like, okay, there's a problem on this landing page or with this goal set and you dig into it and that triggers a whole nother kind of iteration. What are you expecting to see, right? How, how does that process work? So for, for me, typically, again, kind of thinking more about the public facing websites, we're gonna look at the user journey from there. So at the step where people are not completing the action or leaving the site, leaving the funnel, whatever it may be. I think it's kind of good to go to that point in the user journey, user experience, and say, what's happening? And, and kind of just go through the experience yourself. So it's like a heuristics review. You're going to look to see what's happening there. Uh, and hopefully, you will be able to identify what's happening. And if you can't, on your own, doing usability testing, if possible. So again, if we're talking about sensitive government systems, probably can't really do some real usability testing. But if you can, it's great. You go observe the users, see what they're doing, ask some questions, and, and then take that feedback, maybe take it to a designer or a user experience person and have them come up with some solutions that we can then implement on the site. Now, let me ask you this, John. You know, are, you, are you getting involved you know, in the early phases of the you know, kind of pre-launch of a website or um, you know, and by that I mean in the design phase, right? If you're re-envisioning, like, let's say, a full-scale modernization project, um, where 
you are looking to take a system that maybe existed on the mainframe or in an older tech stack, and the development team is supposed to be really just modernizing this, moving it to maybe moving it into the cloud, moving it into a modern technical architecture. Um, is there is there work for you to do in your mind before that system launches to make sure you're developing the system right the first time? So I think the prep work can go in different directions depending on what the need is. So if you have data for how systems are currently used and you're modernizing the system, there are probably certain things that you want to keep and there's probably things that you can get rid of. So that can change your requirements. I think on websites and the like, it's always good to look at the data and, and kind of see what's working and what's not. What are people looking at? What are things they're not looking at? And then trying to figure out why. Audience research is always very important at this stage. So if you can talk to the users and get a feel for what they need, that's also great because then you can apply that and build something that really speaks to them. Yeah, and I think that's where we've had the most success is really doing some of that human-to-human um, -human interaction, talking to our end users, understanding how the system may or may not have been working well for them in the past. Because uh, I'll, be, I'll be honest, we really just have not had a lot of analytics to um, you know, in the legacy systems to help drive decision making moving forward. But here we are. We've we've moved a lot of systems forward over the last couple of years, and and now I think the challenge for us is how do we start saying okay, um, instead of giving you guys new features, let's take a look at how the system's working for you today, and using data. Um, figure out ways to improve the usability so you might have fewer button clicks to complete a task, fewer screen switches to look up data or get the report you need. And I think that's what I think that's the big problem that many of our teams are faced with today. Um, trying to move our customers forward from where they are right now and applying data to do that. So with that in mind, I actually don't think I have a question to ask. I, I totally <laughs> lost that. <laughs> so, totally fine. I think one thing that comes to mind in what you said is, this is a, a word that probably not everyone knows, atavism. Are you guys familiar with the concept of atavism? Yep. So I, I feel like, just to clarify for people who, who don't know, atavism is like a feature or something that has carried over from a previous system that doesn't is no longer really needed. I think examples of this in evolution are like humans still have a tailbone, but it's not really needed for anything. Uh, it's just always kind of been there. I feel like sometimes when we move from like legacy systems to new systems, we carry some of those like atavistic features with us and we don't need them. So I always feel it's good to kind of take a look at what you were thinking of there, Adam, of, you know, like, do we need all these pieces? Maybe there are definitely things we need and maybe there are definitely things that we don't need to carry over because, you know, I know we've always done it that way, but why do we always do it that way? You know, when, um, when, when next, so I don't know if you all remember next, right? The, the company Steve Jobs founded after he was kicked out of Apple and then came back and bought into it when he went back to Apple, but next had a product called web objects. Do you remember that Adam? And web objects was, was a really impressive platform, but one of the reasons why it was super successful was because at the time it was one of the single platforms that you could go to that actually did screen scrapes of terminals, right? So you could do a terminal emulation session with a mainframe and then do a screen scrape and pull all the data elements into the framework. 
So it was super fascinating that that you had this product that was largely embraced uh, because it it provided this capability and backwards connection into the legacy in order to bring it forward. I think there's a really interesting question around when do you, you know, can you use analytics to determine when to let go of the past? I mean, that's my, that's a really fascinating question from my perspective. I was reading something. I don't know which company it was. I think they're like a big fortune 500 company. They eliminated voicemail, I believe. And the reason was that no one used it. No one checked it. And that's like one of those things that make me think about what you were saying there is, you know, do we need that system still? When is the right time to give that up? Isn't it better just to have someone send an email? Yeah, that's totally true. And we've been doing a lot of, you know, internal to our own company. We have a lot of different cloud environments, a lot of different projects that we've started and built over the years. And you know, a lot of that stuff happens so organically that you don't always know who's using what, who is interested in that server or this server. Is anybody using that? Do they still work here? And we've started to wrap a governance process around it. And when when in doubt, we shut things off, right? And we, uh, our, our motto is basically, look, if if the users are upset about it, they're, they're we're probably going to hear about it. <laughs> I mean, assuming you can turn it back on, that's great. It's a good assumption. Yes. Yeah. We, yeah. we, we, we don't delete everything. We just, uh, you know, press stop on the server and see what happens for a couple of weeks. And, uh, if nobody, nobody complains, you know, it's clearly an unused feature, right? And so why are you paying for it? Why has it become this, um, burden to the organization? Because all those little pieces do end up, you know, costing something, right? And, even if it's a nominal nominal in a dollar cost, it's still something that has to be maintained and shepherded in some way. So even those features, those remote features of a system that nobody's using, they're still in the code base. It's still something that a, a new developer is going to have to probably learn or understand that exists. And why is it there if it's not really providing value? And I think, you know, at the end of the day, you know, John, I don't know if you've listened to our podcast, but one of the things that you'll you'll hear John Janik and I talk about regularly is business value. So at the end of the day, if it's not delivering business value, get rid of it, right? I mean, we're not holding on to features here or technology for sentimental value. That's not really our business. <laughs> I think that makes total sense. And I, I feel like there's lots of systems that I've inherited in certain ways that I'm like, why are we doing it this way still? Yeah. How can you, you know, the, so really interesting question, Adam, because, you know, as you're talking about those things, in my mind, what I'm thinking about is, you know, those are very reactive. We take that position because we don't have the insight or the ability to say, we have people coming to this service, right? We have, you know, one of the, we've recently, as Adam said, literally turned certain service off just to see if anybody would notice. And, um, and in some cases they did. And in most cases they didn't. And it's been interesting from that perspective, because I think when you talk about analytics, John, what, what you're talking about is the ability to kind of get ahead of that problem a little bit, right? To see what those trends are. And before you get to the point where, hey, nobody's been to this server in six months. Do you think we can just turn it off? You can see that trend well in advance and just think of the kind of, you know, to your point, Adam, the business value that you generate out of that by saying, you know, we should turn this off now. We should be looking for what's the, what, you know, we're seeing a huge drop off. People aren't using it. The capability set 
has either exceeded or been eliminated by the population, what are the, where are they going, right? So I think that's a really interesting question for you, John. When, when you see drop-offs and there's nothing immediately evident, do you ask yourselves that question, where are they going? You know, you see this on the internet all the time where people stop coming to your site and start going to other sites because they're getting better answers somewhere else, right? So I'm kind of curious, how do you think about analytics in that way in order to be able to be insightful rather than reactive, right? So I think that's really difficult. We, we try to figure those things out, but sometimes you don't notice what's happening until later because maybe you're not looking in the right place or maybe you didn't realize it was happening. I think one of the things internally that we've been discussing is where are people going for health information during the time of COVID? A lot of the government clients I work with, they've put up banners on their websites or made statements about coronavirus. And the data we're seeing is that a lot of people didn't look to many of these agencies for that information. They really were looking to like the CDC, basically, because I guess the CDC is what's shown to us on the news and things like that. And that's where a lot of people went. And we can see that in the data that we have that's, you know, in the top 500 coronavirus pages in um, the government right now, I, I would say almost 90% of them were for CDC. So maybe it isn't always necessary to to react, I guess I'm sort of saying. And I'm losing my train of thought a little bit here. So remind me again, John, where were we going with this? Oh, yeah, I was just curious, you know, rather than just turning servers off, you know, it's. And I think you're exactly right. It is, it is sometimes hard to see where you're at, right, when you're there in the moment. Um, but when you see general trends, right, that are they're formed over, like you said, that that analytics ability to look backwards and see what behavior looks like over an extended period of time, there's a lot of value in that. And you can understand a little bit more about what to expect if you've had, for instance, so, so coronavirus is a good example, right? You deal with a lot of health websites. I'm sure a lot of them expected to be sources of information during this particular period of time. And what you're finding is that that's not where people are going. So, you know, how do you, you know, well, I'm not going to get into that question, but, but I think there's a question around going back to your user experience discussion and Adam's business value discussion of making sure that you're flagging this is like, how, how do you flag it that, Hey, this was a good experiment. It's time to iterate, you know? So this is the other thing Adam and I talk about a lot is this idea of agile means always iterating towards value. And mm -hmm. so if you do something and you don't get immediate value out of it, what's the pivot, right? What is, what is the next thing that you can do to experiment and to try again? I mean, I think continuing to iterate is always good. So you talked about A-B testing before. Sometimes you do an A-B test and it either has a negative impact or no impact at all. And that is okay. I think as long as you're kind of trying to figure out ways to improve, that's bound to happen. You know, not everything you, you try is going to succeed. I think just going back one second to talking about when to shut something off. I think for me, when I see a website like traffic declining, I tend to go look first at the website to say, is something broken? Is it not functioning? Because frequently when I see traffic tank to zero, it means that something's wrong. So I, I feel that's always step one is like the troubleshooting. What happened? Is everything okay? Or has everyone actually shifted on? I think that's a very good indicator of 
content or quality not being there. Uh, we, we, we had an interesting case of that on a complete internet system here in the federal government. And uh, I probably can't say any more in terms of details about what it is than that. But we, we had it on, you know, directly from the user's mouth that we don't like using the system. Instead, we track everything in Excel instead of this application. Okay, so you know we we started talking about it, and was the was the issue training? You know, do they need more training? Do they need to understand it? Is it features that were the features not in the system? It, well, it was it was a combination of a lot of things, but at the end of the day, it was just a bad system, right? Um, the data they wanted wasn't there. Uh, the system was difficult to use because it was developed, you know, maybe in the late '90s or early early 2000s, right? And, uh, you know, folks are, are used to using systems that are much more user-friendly these days. And if you don't meet your users where they are, they're going to find a way around it. And even if you put them, you know, even in the federal government where they only have really one option, well, they proved us wrong, right? They had another option, and their option was to not use the system. And that was a huge, huge problem. So at the end of the day, we wound up redesigning uh, using a lot of – you know, user-centric design to build a new system for them that functioned as they wanted it to, um, redesigning their business processes. But definitely very interesting about, you know, when to shut down a system, right? Yeah, I, I think that's really interesting too. You know, it, it, in my experience with work, even internally at, at any company, if there's a system that's really hard to use, people are probably just going to come up with their own solutions. And then you have that other problem of we got to bring everyone back into using one solution in the future. And, and that might be a bigger problem than, you know, fixing the fixing the the initial situation. But if you don't have the data to back that up, right? If you don't know your users are slowly leaving your system or not completing tasks, you don't know until it's too late that your system is not capable of meeting the, the you know the mission needs, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think you know that's a great takeaway for us, John, as we think about um, designing and developing systems here in the federal spaces. Are we actually tracking data well enough about the usability of our systems? Uh, you know, so so often I think we probably take it for granted, and 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 you know our our federal customers in their IT shops probably as well, right? Assume well, what else are they going to do? But you know, we do know that they can create their own Skunk Works projects. I, I know that there are a number of systems that folks have developed that sit on servers hosted in somebody's cubicle instead of in the, the proper data center farm or AWS. And I'm sure you saw a lot of that at the State Department when you were there as well. Shadow IT is a thing. <laughs> but, but, yeah, but you know, it really gets back to this idea that the data is a strategic asset, right? And and John, I think what the, I really appreciate this whole conversation because the one thing that you've really kind of brought together for me is this idea that data is a strategic as asset, and understanding how people work through interactions and experiences is part of that overall data, right? We can't just look at data from one perspective. Data is going to come to us from a lot of different perspectives, and it's important to understand both the the context. And then the broad application, especially when it's aggregated, so that you haven't you you gave a really good example where well if your utilizations if your analytics drop to zero suddenly that's probably an indicator of a system problem rather than a usability problem. 
And there's no better discussion around that than like, yeah, so why didn't you get the notification from AWS and CloudTrail that the system's down, right? So I think there's there's so much value in this conversation. And Adam, you put it right on on with, with this fo- focus on data, right? Data is how we get to better solutioning, no matter the approach. And there's a lot of different components to how we're going to use data but the underpinning of all this is that data right absolutely i think one thing that you mentioned there too made me think of this there there's some data that's not captured in basic analytics so what we get in a lot of the analytics systems is the quantitative data but the qualitative data where you know those are the pieces that the that's the user's feelings like why aren't they using this and that's where the user testing, maybe even like a little site survey, something like that, really is important because you don't always know why people stop using a system. Uh, it could be like a really simple problem or it could be something really complex or maybe people just don't know about it. And you wouldn't know about that if you're not collecting that qualitative piece as well. Yeah. So we we use a number of different communications platforms in Dev. And I'll, I'll use a very specific example. And we had... Uh, a platform shan't be named, right? But they do a phenomenal job of collecting backend diagnostics. So to the point where if you have a problem with that platform, I can probably tell if it was your Wi-Fi or a problem with their system, right? It's that good. What's really interesting is that until I flipped a switch on their configuration uh, control panel, there was no qualitative survey of how was your interaction with the environment. And there's a whole line of thought and study around that too. You know, there's a whole discussion of, do you use a Likert scale of of one to five, or do you just thumbs up, thumbs down it? And there was a whole body of of research that was done by, was it Netflix a few years ago that said like, look, People are, bi- are are bipolar in this in this discussion. Either they like it or they don't like it. There's really no other analytic that matters given an experience, right? Either they have a positive experience or they don't have a positive experience. People don't tend to go, oh yeah, that was a three. You know, those are those are really arbitrary numbers. So it's really interesting to hear you kind of talk about those. And I, I totally agree with it that that there's a there's an experience part, there's a visceral human component, and then there's also a very quantitative, measurable bits and bytes component and you have to have those two pieces together right yeah i I was just thinking of this it made me laugh a little bit i i force fence riders in a likert scale to pick one side or another so i i give them an even number so a scale of like one to four so either you had a positive experience or a negative experience none of this in the middle because that's not helpful for us as as getting feedback too but you're totally right you could even simplify that's just a thumbs up or thumbs down I think that is a fantastic place to leave it for this evening. John Bobosh of IQ Solutions, thank you so much for joining us tonight, John. We really appreciate your time and your insights. Thank you for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, I got to say, this has been a total thumbs up for me, Adam. I don't know about you. And I hope if you're listening tonight, you're going to give us a thumbs up on whatever podcast. Five stars. Yeah, absolutely. Five (laughs) stars all the way. If there's nothing in between, it's zero, zero, five. Don't tempt them, John. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.